Well, hey everybody, uh, Vert Alcorn here. How's everyone doing today? I am so delighted to be back in the book of First Peter with you guys, but man, I am still beaming from last week. It was such a sweet moment to come together. At least our in-person communities came together and we brought in the, the Zoom community on a big TV. It was so, so sweet to sing together. It was great to teach to a backyard full of people instead of a camera today, but it was such a sweet moment. And um, I, I know as I'm recording this right now, the week is not over yet, so we don't have the final tally yet. I'm hoping we can be able to share some numbers with you uh, in person on Sunday. Uh, but as money is still coming in and the conversations around generosity are still happening, it is such, it's just, it's so amazing. It's blowing me away the kind of generosity that you guys are expressing in probably one of the craziest times of our life. And so if you did miss out on last week, we so missed you. It was such a sweet time together, but we are so delighted to be back in the text, back in First Peter today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to First Peter. Now, at the beginning of the year, uh, we laid out this vision, right? As we were, as we're, even as we kicked off First Peter, even as we've been thinking about the teaching throughout the year, we kicked off this vision to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life of the Spirit. Raise your hand if you're tired of me repeating that phrase at you for an entire year. My, I actually hope you guys memorize that phrase. I hope it's like seared into your mind and you wake up in the morning saying, oh, I, geez, Bert's going to say that phrase again. Like, I hope it's, it's one of those things that just burrows right into you because it is so crucial for us in understanding how we interact and engage with the world around us through a gospel-centered lens, especially in a year like 2020. Now, that vision our elder team had been sitting on for a while. It's something that had been brewing in me for a long time, long before COVID, long before the election craziness has heated up, long before any of what we knew in 2020 was going to happen. And we knew under, before all that, before coronavirus, before all that, we knew understanding how to live in exile was going to be so, so crucial to us and, and how we spend our time, how we spend our money, and how we live out the gospel in this time and this place. We believed it then and we believe it now more than ever. And so over this past year, our entire teaching has been structured around unpacking this idea from our vision and value series at the beginning of the year to when we kicked off Daniel, how to live well in exile, when we kicked off Proverbs, how to live wisely in exile, and now First Peter, how to live holy in exile. Really, First Peter is probably a combination of all three of these together. Now, especially as the political season heats up, there's this, there's going to be, and there already is a high competition for your allegiance. And what Peter is trying to do, not only in our text today, but through the entire letter he writes, is he wants us to maintain a true understanding of where our actual allegiance lies. Our true understanding of the, the nature of the gospel and how it changes everything and what Jesus has accomplished. And if we lose sight of that, and if we lose sight of the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished and why we're here, what God wants to accomplish through us, what happens is we lose sight of the true hope we do have, and then we go on about misplacing our hope in all of the wrong places. Hope in a candidate, 
hope in a measure uh, that's about to be passed, hope in a prop, hope in uh, a particular system or philosophy of government, or even personalized hope in your or my ability to make money and survive, hope in the ability to buy a house, hope in the ability to have kids, or whatever it is, when we take our eyes off Jesus, we misplace our hope and put it in all these other places, which will let you down. Even good things, like the church, will let you down. I will let you down. Your spouse will let you down. Your kids will let you down. Your job will let you down. Even if you pinched all those pennies and saved all that money and you buy a house, that house is going to let you down because stuff is going to break and go wrong all the time. Any place we put our hope other than the person and work of Jesus will let us down. Now, Peter so far has built this theological case for everything he's about to say next. So it's worth reminding ourselves what he's already said here. We've been in 1 Peter for a few weeks, but we took a few weeks off here. Let's do a quick recap of just those first 12 verses. So if you have your Bible, go to those chapter one and just look briefly at those first 12 verses here. Go ahead, take out your Bible or open your phone. Do it now. Yes, you too. Take out your Bible. Do it now. Okay. So the first 12 verses, what Peter's been doing is he's been building this theological case for who God is and what he has done and where that's going to take us today. So what does that mean for you and for me? But where he's been already is that we have a Trinitarian God who has done what was needed to call us elect exiles out of the dispersion. And he caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an imperishable inheritance, guarding us through faith, through through salvation that is to be revealed. He said our suffering is part of this, this testing and deepening of our faith and that we are experiencing the joy of being filled by the presence of God in the midst of difficulty and that none of this is an accident. God has prepared for us this very season through the prophets and angels. In fact, your salvation has been on the mind of prophets and angels and God himself since the beginning of time, that we have a deep, long legacy in salvation. Now, this has all been building. Early in his letter, Peter puts the focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, Peter's showing us the very practical ways that God's love has been given to us through Jesus, the difference he makes in our lives, and the fact that we're not alone in life's struggles and difficulties, but rather we have a God who has endured hardship and walks with us through ours. He's been building this theological case, and it's going to climax and tee up here at a certain point. Peter's theological foundation is leading to a life in exile, of being in exile. He's going to show us that what it means in the beginning of this next section to live in exile in light of everything that God has done. So that takes us to verse 13. Our text today is 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 16. We'll read the whole thing right up top here, and then we're going to go back and work through a couple of different parts. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, what Peter's doing here is he follows up this opening theological, huge foundation with a therefore. All right, guys, we've been through this a few times. When we encounter a therefore in the Bible or really any text, what do we ask? Come on, what's the question? What's the therefore, therefore? Absolutely. What we mean by that is when there is a therefore here in the text, we have to look what happened before to see where he's building his case. What is he wanting from us? Peter is pointing backwards and bringing his previous point to an application here. So another word for therefore would be, in light of everything I just said, do this. And that's exactly what's happening here. Peter wants you to do something with everything you've just heard. Verses 1 through 12, you're overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God. And now Peter says, do something. Get to work. And this is probably where we go off the rails, right? Because we're really good about hearing something, and we are really awful about doing something. We're really good about thinking about something, pondering something, pontificating about something, and we are really bad at doing something. Now, here's the reality we see all throughout Scripture. You will never change if you don't do anything. You'll never change if you don't do anything. This is part of our paradigm for change, our our spiritual formation paradigm that we've laid out over and over again over the last few years. Remember that triangle right there and how we change is teaching and that's listening, that's scripture, that's us processing, it's listening to a sermon, all good things, but that alone won't move us into the person God wants us to become. But with that comes community and practice fueled by the Holy Spirit. We need all of those things working together to produce change or in the language of scripture, sanctification or maturity in us. Teaching is good. Podcasts, good. Books, good. All those things are good thing, but they are virtually useless unless you put anything into practice. You will never change if you don't do anything. That's what Peter's trying to get us to do. He's saying, I'm going to give you this theological case for who God is, what he's done, what that means for you and your salvation. And now you got to do something with it. You got to get to work. You got to move your feet towards action. Because if you don't, why is he even writing what he's writing? Check out some words from Jesus. Jesus actually says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who, what? Does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Again, a few verses later, everyone who then hears these words of mine, hearing is a good thing, everyone who hears them and what? Does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then again, two more verses later, everyone who hears the words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So listen, wise and foolish people alike hear them. 
What's the distinguishing factor for Jesus of who's wise and who's foolish? Those who do them. Which means you can sit through hundreds of sermons, read scripture for hours and hours, listen to all the best podcasts, and Jesus calls you foolish because you don't do anything. Whoa. So many Christians I know have built their lives on hearing only and not doing it to them. Jesus calls them foolish or according to verse 21. They might not even enter the kingdom of God. He's not looking for people who think the right way. He's looking for people who will align themselves to his vision of life and actually do something. So as Peter is winding up his therefore, he wants us to think of all God has done and then to go, well, how do we live in that? How can we possibly live in light of that? What must we do? Because the story from God is so overwhelmingly good and beautiful and gracious. We have to do something. How do we live? What do we do? Well, first, we have to remember what he's been saying. He's been saying your salvation is secured. You have a living hope. You have an imperishable inheritance. You have inexpressible joy. And the angels long to look in the life that you are living. Therefore... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, really astute readers here will notice we missed something. And this is also a problem I want to expose. We often go to the very end and we skip over the middle part. We go straight to finding the solution without working through the process. Or in the language of, uh, of high school math, we got to show our work to get there. We can't just bust out the calculator and get the solution. If we jump, therefore, set your hope fully, we can just like skip the things that Peter says are necessary for that to be possible. There's two modifiers here. Therefore, one, preparing your minds for action. And two, being sober-minded, then you can set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter uses these two modifiers to prepare the way for setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us, which we can then reverse engineer and said, can we even do this last part if we don't do this part and this part? This is huge. These two modifiers are super important because they are preparatory actions on our part. First, preparing your minds for action. If you're going to survive as an exile, there is a mental condition that is needed. Now, I said to you guys last week, I'll say to you guys again, I can draw a direct line between Christ people who claim to be Christians and who have embraced the word God wants to do in and through them and are thriving and flourishing amidst inconvenience and suffering and those who resist that work and are floundering right now. Because there's a, a mental setting of your minds, preparing your minds for action, that this world is not our world, that comfort is not the goal, security is not the goal, money is not the goal, but Jesus is the goal. There's a certain setting your mind, preparing it for action that has to happen. Peter looks at this life, at the life in between these two guaranteed finished work of Jesus 
on one end and the future inheritance we have on the other hand. And he looks at this life that's right in the middle and he says, I guarantee it will be made up of suffering and inconvenience. That in-between life knows that things are going to be challenging. Things are going to be hard. And he'll, he's going to go on in the letter to talk about suffering and how to and how it's basically par for the course if you are a, a Christian in this world. But he says, if you're going to excel as exiles, live well, wisely, and holy as exiles, and live a life of faithfulness in the world, and experience Jesus in this world, if we are going to live well, wisely, and holy, if we are going to become resilient disciples who are faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit, we have to prepare our minds for action. We have to do it. Now, when I say prepare your minds for action, what's, what's the thing that comes to mind? What comes to mind? What's the picture that comes to mind here? I, what comes to my mind is a plan, making a plan, being intentional about something. You can always tell when people run into action without any intentionality, right? There might be a ton of courage there, but there's no intentionality. Now, this happened to me uh, a little bit. Uh, the stakes are very small, I will tell you that. But when we've been kind of redoing some of our backyard, we wanted to hang some lights, hang some shade sails, and kind of like make it a more hospitable place because there was no light out there and the sun would just bake us in the afternoon. So we're trying to process, okay, how do we do this? And instead of like sketching out a master plan, talking with people who've done this before, who've retrofitted their backyards to be hospitable space, we just, I just kind of ran into it. I had a good idea, lights and shade. And that's where the plan stopped. And it took multiple trips to Lowe's to find all the right supplies I needed. Multiple friends helping out at different stages or correcting bad things that I've done. Borrowing gear from other people. When, if I had some intentionality to plan, I could have organized all my supplies at the beginning, had a master plan to be working on, talked with all the relevant experts in my life who could have helped me out and knocked it out in a few hours. But instead, it took many hours over many weeks because I did not walk in with a plan. I had... A lot of good ideas, a lot of good motivation, and no intentionality. And I think that is often how we uh, process our relationship with Jesus. A lot of good motivation, a lot of good ideas, but zero intentionality. Peter is looking for both the courage to do and the intentionality to think weaved into one here. He's calling believers into action, but he's also calling believers to hone their mind and prepare themselves for the work ahead. This speaks to our intentionality with the world that we live in. Are we putting in the preparatory work to shape our minds for the action that God is putting in front of us? Are we engaging with scripture regularly to shape our mind to his worldview and not the worldview of our culture? Are we engaging and thinking critically about major gospel issues in our time and our place? Or even a few minor gospel issues? Or is our mind being sharpened? 
Are we processing and growing in social and emotional knowledge and IQ? Are we processing through scientific and technical knowledge? Are we trying to be proficient in the world that we live in? Are we thinking critically about our political and cultural engagement? These are all ways we are shaping our mind to prepare for action. Because if you have no plan and you jump right into the middle of it, you'll get mowed down right away. Or at the very least, everything will be harder and more complicated. How are you preparing to engage the world that you are in? Because it will not just happen. Peter is challenging all believers to approach this life and this world with intentionality. This has nothing to do with the quality of preaching that you're getting or the depth of the discipleship that someone is walking out with you. This is a call for believers to choose to prepare your mind for action. Don't shirk this off on somebody else. This is all about you in this moment. Are you preparing your mind for action? Are you reading scripture? Are you wrestling with the gospel issues of our time and our place? Are you growing in the kind of knowledge that is necessary to engage this world well for the sake of Jesus? Now he's gonna get into the action itself, but we're still in the preparatory phase right here. The first call is that you will be called into action as a believer and you can't go into that lazily or accidentally. There's gotta be intentionality behind it. But that's the first modifier. The second one here is being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. This preparing for action and sober-minded, it's actually like an English transliteration of this Greek idiom here of like a readiness. Peter essentially told his disciples that are all scattered all throughout the area to, to gird up the loins of their mind, which is how crazy of a phrase is that? It's such a good phrase. I love it. But it's this image of someone who's preparing to run. And now in Peter's time and place, they wore these long robes and, and you couldn't really run in them. So if you need to run, you need to like kind of pull it up and tie them around your waist so you can run really fast. They've got their running shoes on. They've got their workout gear on, like they're ready to go. And being sober-minded and preparing your minds for action is this, it's supposed to be in this mind, like almost like the starter's pistol where we're standing and we're ready to go. And it's the same phrase that Jesus used in Luke chapter 12 to reference the return of the master as he's talking about the coming kingdom. And Peter applies that image to our mind. The idea is that you would be self-controlled in your mental resolve, not letting your mind wander, but like Paul says, to take every thought captive. And the thing that Peter is preparing for us is that times of suffering will lead the mind of any human being to weariness, to drift, to lose focus, to become discouraged, to land on idolatry, to miss the point. Man, is that a word for 2020. I don't even remember what happened at the beginning of the year before coronavirus, but there was, remember when we almost went to war with Iran? Like that was, that was a thing and we've totally forgotten about it. Remember the other thousand things that were happening at the beginning of the year and then coronavirus hits and then the racial justice conversations that are brought to the forefront. Now the election, 
Now, for any human being, the natural thing would be to lose focus, to become weary, to become discouraged, to become insular, to create idols. And Peter is saying Christians should be different. Christians should not think and process the world. that We should actually expect the kind of craziness that 2020 is. That should be our baseline expectation for every year that Jesus does not return. That's what life is going to be like. That's what the world is going to be like. That's how little hope we should put in the things of this world. But instead, we get caught off guard and we look like everyone else going, whoa, why is everything so different? How come I have to work from home? How come I, whatever. Peter's saying, expect that nonsense because your hope is not here. Christian, if you've been let down by 2020, it exposed that you're hoping in all the wrong things. Why should we be so discouraged? Peter told us to expect this kind of nonsense, and instead we're caught off guard like everybody else. Put your hope in Jesus. He will not let you down. Not like your party will or your politician of choice or your comfort level, or how you live your life here. Jesus will not let you down. He wants us to set our minds fully on Jesus. Rather than those things, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we are going to do that, we have to ready our minds. We have to be self-controlled. We have to prepare for the onslaught of worldly voices and ideologies that will try to convince us that they are worth giving our lives to. I know social media is not real life. I, I do know this. But it's hard for me not to be discouraged when I flip on social media and see so little Jesus from Christians and so much bickering, so much complaining, so much political engagement. And and those things are fine. But they're not Jesus. And as much as we are living worlds in, in isolation and are kind of held back, social media is a little bit of how we engage the world around us. And when I see you post about political things, that's fine. When I see you post about whatever, that's fine. I'm just not seeing a whole lot of Jesus. How are you going to tell me that Jesus is the most important thing in your life when all roads lead to other things being more important in your life? Let me ask you a question. Thursday night, last presidential debate. The first one, hot mess, can we all agree? Then we had a VP debate. And then we have another presidential debate on Thursday. How much time did you spend watching any, any or all of those and reading news reports, articles, social media posts afterwards? How worked up did you get? Now, simple contrast. How much time have you spent reading your Bible? It's not a guilt-shame thing. But what it is, is exposing where your hope truly lies. Because if you spend more time watching presidential debates, reading all the commentary about them, firing off social media posts about them, and it's fine to be politically engaged. That's a part of how we work out our Christian faith. But if you're doing all of that and can't hack five minutes in the morning to be in scripture, your priorities are off. How are you going to prove to me otherwise? 
Peter says we should be different. That when the dumpster fires of 2020 hit us, we should not only expect it, but embrace it and go, yes, this is the crucible of change in my life. I'm going to grow. This year's going to be extra hard. That means I'm going to grow extra. Things seem to be on fire with the election. Cool. I know that's not where my hope is. My hope is firmly planted in Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we don't give in to the culturally coercive voices that want to convince us that their thing is the main thing and it is simply not. So what is it that we are called into? What are we preparing for? What are we setting our minds on? Here is the action in verse 14. As obedient children, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So do not be conformed to the things you got all excited about before you encountered Jesus. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus. And here's our action. Be holy. The first calling of a believer is to live out the character of Jesus here on earth. Peter wants his church to maintain a loose grip on the things of this world and a tight grip on the things of the world to come. What does this look like? First up, the negative, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, what are the things that somebody who does not have living hope in Jesus and does not have an imperishable inheritance in Christ waiting for them, what are the things they get caught up in? Simple litmus test here. What are the things they get caught up in? What is it? Building a fat retirement, making sure their kids are well-behaved, whatever's going on with the election right now, what are the things they're getting caught up in? And Peter's saying, okay, first things first, whatever they're getting caught up in, you don't get caught up in that. Don't do it. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. They don't know any better. Jesus uses this really gracious term to describe those who don't know him as lost. They're wandering. They don't know. And Peter says, don't be conformed to the same thing that ignorant people get conformed to. Don't don't get all wrapped up and all caught up in the things that people who don't know the truth get caught up in. Those passions are not the passions of followers of Jesus. Peter wants to ensure that you separate out the things that somebody who doesn't know Jesus would fill their minds and their hearts with and remind you that you are free from obsessing over those things. You don't have to do it. That doesn't mean we're not engaged, but it doesn't mean that's where our ultimate hope lies. Whatever happens in a couple weeks on election day, we should neither be too excited or too discouraged because that's not where our hope is. Secondly, the second action, first is the the negative form, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The second action is as he who's called you is holy, you be holy in all of your conduct. 
Peter's hope is that we will live out the character of God himself in the life that we live here on earth. What does that character look like according to Peter? Holiness. Okay, so holiness gets a bit of a bad rap. It has all this baggage that comes along with us. But let me just tell you, the simplest biblical definition of holiness is this, set apart. Set apart. So before you read morality into it, before you read self-righteousness into it, the very base biblical definition for holiness is simply distinct or set apart or moved right over here. Holiness is the set-apart concept of God, that He is something different, something unique, something singular. He is distinct and different from the way of the world. God is without sin. He's blameless. He's good. He's righteous. He's faithful. He's steadfast. He is love. He is truth. And He is perfect. And God is holy. And Peter says, like God is holy, you be holy. Whoa, that's, that's a pretty high call, isn't it? But look at how Peter sets up this section. Peter says that you should not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but instead you should be holy, which means don't be conformed to this world. Like Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't go here. This is where everyone else is going. This is where God's going. Go this way. The hope here is that instead of getting caught up in the things of this world, you will get all caught up in the things of God. The reality of our salvation is that we are declared holy and blameless by the finished work of Jesus. This is what Colossians 1 says. Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Holiness has been declared over you. It's an identity statement, but it is also something that is being formed in us and growing in us, like Hebrews tells us. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So growth, sanctification, holiness, spiritual maturity, whatever you want to call it, it's declared over you in a justification sense. God looks at you and he sees the character and holiness of Jesus. And, and, not or, and it is being perfected in you. You are becoming holy. You are being sanctified. You are growing into spiritual maturity. And what that juxtaposition means for us is that there is a once and for all spiritual holiness that is given to us at the point of salvation. And there is also a process of becoming holy or being made holy that happens over the course of our remaining lives. The Spirit is sanctifying us, as Peter has already said. So holiness is yours and it's increasing. Holiness is yours from an identity standpoint and it is increasing, which means it's something we engage with over the course of our lives. Every day you have an opportunity to pursue the holiness or the set-apartness of God applied to your life. You can be holy because God is holy. And God's presence is in you and with you. And Peter wants to make sure that we are actively pursuing that holiness in every single part of our lives. We should be holy because our lives are meant to live in exile in this world. 
So if holy means set apart, our lives should be holy because we are different. We are distinct in our exile. We don't buy into the value structures, worldviews, and hope systems of this world. We're set apart. We're different. And just like God is set apart and different, we are to be set apart and different. Now, when this is all said and done, as believers, we are filled with God's very presence. And that means there's a engage with God or resist the work of God dynamic that happens. There's not this gray area of just being cool with God. You're either engaging with him and partnering with him in the work he wants to do in and through you to make you more holy, or you're resisting the work that he wants to do in and through you. Be holy because I am holy is not a threat. It's not a standard too high. It's not hyperbole. It's this beautiful theological reality that, I, that, that we are holy, that God has chosen you, that God says, I am holy and I have chosen you. And it's a beautiful invitation, be like me. Be just how I am. The creator of everything says, be like me. We are holy by declaration. Now the call on us is to pursue lives of holiness where we are increasingly portraying the purity of our God in a muddy, muddy world. Be holy because I am holy is the ultimate becoming who you are command. This is who you are. Just keep taking steps to become more who you are. But this is not inevitable. It will not just happen to you. Holiness doesn't just sit on your shoulders one day and you're a wholly different person. It takes commitment. It takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes change. Because chances are your life, like mine, by default, is not set up for you to become more holy. Chances are life is set up to make you more happy. And those are not the same thing. Do you want to grow in holiness? Do you want to prepare your minds for action? Do you want to be sober-minded? Do you want to set your minds fully on the hope that is the grace of Jesus? All of this starts with a simple invitation. Would you like to grow? Would you like to grow? There are a lot of Christians who don't want to grow. I don't think that's who Peter's talking to. Because I think genuinely, if you've been saved and changed by Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit in you, you want to grow. You want to become more like him. Do you want to grow? If we are going to become resilient disciples of Jesus, who are faithful in the face of extreme cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit, you have to want to grow. You have to want to change, to become more holy, more like Jesus. Do you want to grow? If you don't, you can tune me out, which I'm sure you already have. It's okay. If you do want to grow, this last part is for you. Okay, so listen up. If you follow Jesus and you want to grow, this part is for you. Because I want to give you a practical next step to becoming more holy, to becoming more like Jesus. 
I'm gonna give you one next step here, one practical next step if you want to grow. And that's to practice our community rule of life. I taught on this back in our Becoming a Non-Anxious Present series, a rule of life to engage the chaos and confusion of our world, and particularly to engage the chaos and confusion that is 2020 and probably 2021. Um, And we put it, and I did a whole podcast series on unpacking all of these different elements of our rule of life. Um, We've talked about this before, so you can go backwards and you can dive a little bit deeper if that's unfamiliar language to you. But a rule of life is simply a trellis for your discipleship. It's simply the structure on which you as the branches connected to the vine grow and flourish. It's simply a trellis for your apprenticeship to Jesus. It's not an end, but it's a means to an end of being with Jesus. And so if you would like to grow, practice the community rule of life. Now, if you're starting from scratch, there are eight practices we lay out here and you can check them out on our website or in our app. But if you're totally new to all of this, Start with one or two, right? And start with the low-hanging fruit, like Sabbath and church on Sundays, because if you're watching this, you're probably already doing that. So boom, check one off the list. But commit to that. And there are a few others that are helpful, a few others in how we're engaging with God and a few others of how we're resisting the voices of the world. There are eight simple practices there. Engage with them. I challenge you to do it. Now, here's the challenge. What if, what if you took one month so this is the October 25th. Um, at the end of uh, November's Thanksgiving, this is roughly about a month. What if you took a month now from Thanksgiving to walk out our community rule of life? Bible before phone, parenting your phone, practicing gratitude, regular generosity, Sabbath church on Sundays, prayer and fasting once a week, all those things. What if you did this for a month as a total experiment total experiment, what would happen? What could happen? Do you want to grow? If you want to grow, engage for the next month in our community rule of life and see what happens. Be open. Now, a good rule of life, I've said this before multiple times, is not written in pen, it's written in pencil. It's a working document And it's just kind of like a financial budget that ebbs and flows with time to help bring some guardrails and and financial thriving in the same way a good rule of life is kind of shiftable and workable. So once again, if this is new language for you, go back and listen to a past teaching I did on becoming a non-anxious presence. Go back and listen to some of the podcasts I put out around a rule of life. But if you want to grow in becoming more holy and more set apart... It won't just happen. It's going to require change and discipline and practice. So what if we as a church for the next month practiced this community rule of life? Some of them are daily practices. Some of them are weekly practices. Go to the website, check it out. Pop in the app, check it out. What if for one month we all committed to try this out together? What could happen? How would our lives look different? How would your discipleship to Jesus look different? How would the world around us see us? That's my invitation to you. It's my challenge to you. I'm doing this with you. I've been walking out a lot of this rule of life already. It's come from, uh, like, I don't want to present anything to you that I'm not already doing, but I'm going to commit to the next month to do this with you guys. Community rule of life. Bible before phone. Parent your phone. Daily regular moments of gratitude. 
regular generosity, limiting screen time, news, and escapist behaviors, community in our smaller group during the week, Sabbath and church on Sundays, prayer and fasting once a week. I'm in this with you guys. Let's try this for one month and see what could happen. Jesus, we love you so much. Jesus, thank you for the work that you're doing in and through us. Thank you that the deep challenge from Peter today to not be satisfied and looking like the rest of the world, but to be holy because you are holy. Would you help us prepare our minds for action? Would you help us be sober-minded? Would you help us to so think through everything else in this world differently than those who do not have our hope fully in you? Jesus, you are so good to us. And like the wise man who built his house on the rock, we want to hear and do. Would you give us strength? Would you give us power? Would you give us courage? And like Peter is saying, would you give us an intentionality that our faith has not had? Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. We know that this is not an end. It's a means to an end. And we know this is not even the point, but it helps get us to you. So would you help keep Jesus so clearly fixed in our eyes? Amen.